to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Sometimes in Civil War Talk Radio, we look at the big picture, the underlying cause of the war, the effect it still has on American society. Sometimes we look at the overall strategic situation, decisions made in Washington or Richmond. Sometimes we focus on specific campaigns or individual battles. But tonight we go micro, one unit on one hill at one battlefield. Join us for a talk with Lee Elder, author of That Bloody Hill, Hilliard's Legion at Chickamauga, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. Not, however, speaking for the university or anyone else, nor will my guest speak for anyone but himself, as always here. It's the middle of October 2018, and it's dark outside. The show starts at 7 p.m. on a Wednesday night, Eastern Time, and it's usually still light uh, through the summer hours and the beginning of the fall, but... Last week, for the first time, the show began in darkness, and now it's not only dark tonight, but it's actually cool outside. I cannot tell you how welcome that is. I was in Michigan two weeks ago and sent my wife a text that it was 60 degrees, 
with a photo showing a solid overcast sky, not a hint of sunshine anywhere. She was consumed with jealousy. That's how autumn is supposed to look, not hot and sunny and humid like it is here in North Carolina far too much of the time. But today, finally cool, a little bit rainy, finally getting there. And speaking of Michigan, my alma mater is back in the top 10. But this week, we play the arch rivals at East Lansing. And uh, I saw online this year, Michigan has a new fan strategy to prevent Michigan State from thriving on the underdog chip on the shoulder that allows them to beat us seemingly every year. Uh, Michigan fans are projecting nothing but respect for MSU, for our uh, sister school to the West, uh, with their excellent veterinary programs and hospitality management and other things they do extremely well in East Lansing. We're very proud to be uh, part of the same educational system up there. Uh, we have nothing but the highest respect, and you guys beat Penn State too. So, so there you go. Uh, we'll see if that yeah, we'll see how that works out on Saturday. Speaking of underdogs, my team here, East Carolina, plays a top ten team on Saturday. That's just going to be ugly. But let's talk Civil War, which is what you're here for. There was a fascinating uh, article that uh, a listener sent me the link to this week. Uh, I think it was on the Atlantic's website. A Medical study, apparently, uh, historical medical study, apparently determined that sons of prisoners of war held in Confederate prison camps, Union soldiers held as prisoners, who later had children of their own after the war, had children with more health problems or uh, more stress-related problems than, than people not in that control group. Apparently, uh, theorizing that the stress of being held a prisoner of war triggered genetic changes in the soldiers themselves, which they then passed on to their children. Uh, It's a fascinating article uh, worth looking up if you can figure out how to Google that. I'm sure you're you're able to do that better than I could tell you. Uh, I've always heard that stress is hereditary and that you get it from your children, but here we see an actual argument that stress could induce actual changes in someone's genetic makeup uh, during their lifetime, and then that could be passed on. Very interesting article. Uh, When you're done reading that, uh, make your plans for all the many interesting things to do in the months ahead. The Lincoln Forum is coming up November 16 through 18 in 2018. Uh, It is a program, if you've never been to it, that is highly worth going to. I don't think it is sold out yet this year. I'm not certain. Uh, so check that out. Go to the Lincoln Forum, all one word, dot org, and find out about this uh, program that brings together scholars and uh, people involved in the study of Lincoln in the Civil War era, names you're familiar with, people who've been on this show, and uh, big roomfuls of enthusiastic uh, uh, students of the war, people who do things like listen to Civil War talk radio, then get to go and interact with these people. It's, it's a really good program, highly recommended. Similar in, uh, in some ways is the Civil War Institute, also in the same town at Gettysburg College. That's June 14 through 19, 2019. You've got time to prepare for that. Save your dollars, cash in your your. Uh, lottery tickets and IRA and sign up for the uh, Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. 
And if you choose not to do that, uh, one last opportunity, this hallowed ground, the tour offered by Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, go to stephenambrosetours.com and look that up. I will be leading the tour from May 18 to May 26, 2019, and would always enjoy talking with uh, people on the trip who are Civil War Talk Radio listeners and always try to convert the rest of them into listeners. But it's a fascinating way to learn about the war. If you haven't been to the battlefields, you, you've got to see them. And if you have, it's still a very interesting way to do it in a concentrated week or 10-day period to see a whole selection of sites from the, the Eastern Theater and be with people who have a similar interest, but who are not, I should stress this, are not um, fanatics about it. Uh, some people are nervous on the first night of the trip. They think everybody else there has already read the entire official records and will will humble them with their expertise. Uh, and people don't do that. People have all levels of interest from a huge amount to just a passing interest. But the conversations are always enlightening and, and intriguing, and, and people aren't trying to one-up each other with the trivia they know. And If they were to do that, I would smack them down anyway. So uh, uh, come along. It's a lot of fun. If you're not traveling anywhere, listen to the show. We've got good shows coming up. Next week, Christopher Stowe, professor of military history and head of the War Studies Department at the Marine Corps Command and Staff College, will join us talking about the use of military history in professional military training. Uh, He's also been a faculty member at the Civil War Institute. The following week, October 31st, Halloween. I'll be busy putting on my costume all day, so instead of doing a live show, uh, we'll play an interview recorded this past summer at the Civil War Institute with Elizabeth Parnitza, the historian and site manager of the Chancellorsville Visitor Center, part of the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park, and also Tim Talbot, director of education at the Pamplin Historical Park and National Museum of the Civil War Soldier. We recorded that last June. They had some very interesting things interesting things to say, and uh, I know you'll enjoy listening to it. I'm looking forward to hearing it, although hearing my own voice on the radio is kind of freaky. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll have to get used to that. A couple more shows after that. Uh, sticking with Gettysburg, we have Jennifer Murray, whose book details the history of the park itself on a great battlefield, the making, management, and memory of Gettysburg National Military Park, 1933 to 2013, and uh, one more Gettysburg, and then we'll, we'll go somewhere else the rest of the month, I promise. But on November 14th, Jeffrey Hunt writes about Meade and Lee after Gettysburg, the final, forgotten final stage of the Gettysburg campaign, July 14 through 31. So many of us never knew it to forget it. Others have forgotten it. We'll learn about what happened two weeks after the battle uh, from Jeffrey Hunt on November 14th. You can find out about these things, as always, from impedimentsofwar.org, the website for the show. You can go to the Facebook page of the show. If you go to Impediments of War, you can donate money to me uh, by clicking on the PayPal donation button. The work is done for you. I just filled out my annual uh, charitable giving payroll deduction form today, including a donation to the Civil War Preservation Trust, now the American Battlefields Trust. So uh, 
if you donate to the show, I take that money, that replenishes the money I'm giving to the Battlefields Trust, so you're really giving it to the Battlefields Trust. Uh, that's one way to think of it. Or you can just think of helping me buy more libations uh, for the show. Well, let's get on with the show. Tonight we talk with uh, Lee Elder, who has written a book called that bloody hill, Hilliard's Legion at Chickamauga. We're going to find out which hill it is. We're going to find out what a legion is and other things. Uh, Lee, are you there? Right here, Jerry. How are you doing today? Good. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, you and I met last year at the Civil War Institute in Gettysburg, and you were kind enough to share a copy of this book with me, and that and brings us together here. Uh, but I recall when, when you talked briefly, uh, you indicated that your background was not uh, uh, Civil War all day, all the time, uh, but in, in other things close to my heart. Uh, for example, uh, uh, things involving uh, various athletic contests. Uh, t- tell us about your background. Well, I uh, went to San Diego State, and I minored in history. That's got to be good mm-hmm. for something. But I was uh, my dream was to be a sportscaster, and instead I ended up being a sports writer for quite a while. Covered pretty much every sport that there is. And mm-hmm. uh, after that, I became a publicist in the racing business. Worked for NASCAR for a while and for Goodyear for a while. So I've uh, I've got quite an extensive background in auto racing, but I've always been interested in history. And the book came about, the interest in the Civil War was already there, but it got peaked when I needed to do some genealogical research to help my daughter get a college grant. And Hmm. the story of Hilliard's Legion just tripped and fell right on top of my desk, and it's basically been in front of me for the last 14 years now. Well, well, we will get into that. I want to say I, I... People will sometimes ask me questions about Abraham Lincoln based on things I've written, and, and what would Lincoln say about, uh, you know, some contemporary issue? And, and my response is usually, you know, would Lincoln favor NASCAR or open wheel racing? Would he be a Formula One <laughs> Indy guy or stock car guy? I, that, in other words, you can't ask those questions about the past. No one knows, uh, but you might actually know, given your auto racing background. Uh, but let's let's go back to uh, Chickamauga. First of all, you, you were researching a genealogical for a, a college grant uh, without violating FERPA, any student confidentiality. Uh, can you say anything else about that? I know there are grants for people with different uh, backgrounds or uh, connections. If, if you look hard enough, and students do look hard, they can find those things. Did that work out in your case? It certainly did. Um, I, I, I'm going to have to tell you the truth. First, we contacted the Daughters of the American Revolution because on my mother's side, we qualify. But they mm-hmm. were so rude that I decided not to pursue that anymore. <laughs> and on my father's side, we have this connection to the Confederacy. And I found out that the Daughters of the Confederacy have a grant. And my daughter was eligible. She applied for it, and she got it. And I have to report to you that in addition to being so nice uh, about giving my daughter a, a small grant for her for three years in college, uh, when I was doing the research into my book, they were also extraordinarily helpful uh, in that regard. Well, that is, that is very good to hear that uh, those organizations are, are you know, I, I, I recognize what you said about the first one. My wife also qualifies for that, but we didn't have never pursued that. Um, 
But there are also people involved in similar organizations. I've spoken to UCV or Sons of Confederate Veterans uh, here in North Carolina, and some of the groups are crazy people, I'll be frank, and, and some of the groups couldn't be nicer and are deeply interested in history and, and will help a researcher uh, with everything they can. So uh, you just got to find the right group, I guess. Uh, so you've yeah, been working I, 14, 14 years? You said 14 well, the, the, years. It took 13 years to write the book, and the book was published in January of this year, so I'm calling it 14, but I spent 13 mm-hmm. writing it. From the moment I started working on it until the moment I opened the box with the first copies of the book at my house, it was 13 years. Well, well that's always a great moment when, when the book arrives. Um, so, so Hilliard's Legion came to you through while you're doing this genealogical research. Do you have a, a connection to the unit uh, genealogically? I do. I have a great-great-grandfather who was in Company F of the 1st Battalion of Hilliard's Legion. Hilliard's Legion had a total of five battalions originally and approximately 3,000 men when it was formed. One of the battalions was cavalry, and the Confederate government took that away immediately and merged it with a Georgia group to form the 10th Confederate Cavalry. That left four battalions. One of them was an artillery battalion that eventually came to fight as infantry. So as they went up Horseshoe Ridge, which we're going to talk about tonight, uh, there were four basically infantry battalions that made up Hilliard's Legion, which was a part of Archibald Gracie's brigade. Well, that the idea of the Legion is an interesting unit, and we're going to come back and talk about that's the first question I want to ask you, in fact. Uh, but we'll take a short break now, talking tonight with Lee Elder, author of That Bloody Hill, Hilliard's Legion at Chickamauga. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Lee Elder, author of That Bloody Hill, Hilliard's Legion at Chickamauga. Uh, Lee, you said that Hilliard's Legion was made up of four battalions in most of the time when we read about the Civil War, we're reading about infantry units that are regiments, a thousand people nominally whittled down to three or four hundred by 1863. The Hilliard's Legion, you said, has four battalions uh, at Chickamauga, September 1863. So how big is it? What's, what is a battalion in, in this context? You could roughly think of a battalion as regiment size. It's mm-hmm. not going to be exactly the same, but it's fairly close. When the uh, Legion was originally formed, each battalion totaled, uh, the, the five battalions totaled 3,000 men. So, you know, roughly 600 per battalion. And so you could think of it as regimental size. By the time they got to Chickamauga, it was nowhere near that size. Each, reg, each battalion, rather, had somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 men, a little bit more than that. Uh, disease and other things that were common to Civil War commands during that era struck them, and they did not actually uh, go into combat until the 20th of September, 1863, but the disease and all the other issues that happened to Civil War battalions and regiments uh, struck them and, and narrowed their size down quite a bit before that happened. So when they go in, their their strength is just under a 1,000 uh, Typically, there's four or five regiments in a brigade, where a brigade is 1,500, maybe 2,000, depending which theater, which side. So the Legion's not, it's too big for a regiment, too small for a brigade. Was it part of somebody else's brigade then? It was, as a matter of fact. Hilliard's Legion was the largest part of Archibald Gracie's brigade as they attacked uh, Horseshoe Ridge at Chickamauga. And uh, the other two components of Gracie's brigade were the 43rd Alabama, which had approximately 400 soldiers, and the 63rd Tennessee, which had approximately 402 soldiers. So I've always worked with the approximate number of 1,700 for uh, the size of Gracie's uh, brigade as it went up the hill that afternoon. Okay. So getting to, then, the Battle of Chickamauga, this is... uh it said September 63, we're in the Western Theater. Uh, General Rosecrans' Army of the Cumberland has, has driven the Confederates out of Tennessee with, without having to fire a shot, practically. 
And then we have the great battle, the Confederate counterattack of Bragg's army against Rosecrans on September 19 and 20. And you, you referenced David Powell's book on several times in yours. Uh, Dave's been on the show uh, a number of times, and I, I'm guessing listeners are familiar with his work. If not, uh, you should be. It's, it's excellent. Uh, and so where, where can you set Horseshoe Ridge in the context of the battle for us? Certainly. Horseshoe Ridge is, uh, if you will, a series of three hills, which as you go to the battlefield today and if you're at the visitor center, you can almost see it except for the trees getting in the way from the visitor center if you know where to look. It's elevated, obviously. That's why they call it a hill. And it is in the, I want to say, the northern, I'm going to put myself in a bad position here, but approximately the northern eastern part of the battlefield park. Okay, and the uh, and I, on the day this is on the left end uh, or southern end of the Confederate line. Is that accurate? That's absolutely correct. Yes, Longstreet's uh, half of the Confederate Army. Okay, so you got Polk commanding the right half of the Confederate Army, Longstreet commanding the left half, and uh, now Longstreet had just showed up, literally the day of the battle. So he was not familiar with Hilliard's legion uh, or its brigade or its division, for that matter, beforehand. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, They had been in Bragg's Army of the Tennessee uh, for most of the year, 1863. And Longstreet got there, like you say, the day of the battle. He got there a little after midnight the night before and discovered he was in charge of the southern half of the Confederate Army. And Gracie's brigade was part of Preston's, William Preston's division. There were two other brigades in that division, and they were held in reserve. And I think that's principally because Longstreet just didn't know them, but he did know that uh, most of them had not been in combat before. And so I believe the reason that he held them in reserve was he did not have confidence in how they would react Obviously, they ended up reacting very well, but he didn't know how that was going to work out at the time he was Mm -hmm. holding them in reserve. So they were literally the last soldiers that Longstreet put into the battle. So let's go back and look at this Legion a bit. You mentioned they hadn't been in combat up to now. Were they formed right at the beginning of the war, or when when did they come together? July of 1862, um, really is the the month of June and half the month of July of 1862. They were formed together, almost entirely men from Alabama. There was a company or a company and a half of men from Georgia, Uh, not just the cavalry guys, but the predominantly infantry company came from Georgia and joined. But uh, they were all put together at that period. And uh, Henry Washington Hilliard is the name of the man who formed the Legion, And the way that that worked out is he had done great service to the Confederate cause prior to the war breaking out. He was actually born near you, Jerry. He was born in North Mm. Carolina and uh, ended up as a law professor at the University of Alabama and then practiced law in Alabama. Uh, He was a senator, and he was also uh, charged affairs to Belgium for a while. So when he came back and eventually joined the Confederate government, they had him go off to Tennessee to convince Tennessee to secede from the Union. And after he had done that, he came back and they, in essence, awarded him by allowing him to raise a Union and then command it. 
He didn't command it very long because he may have been a very fine politician, but he was not a very good military leader. And so he eventually resigned. And it's interesting, Jerry. Officers mm-hmm. resign. Privates don't get to resign. If no. a private resigns, he goes to jail. So I've always found that to be interesting, the difference between officers and privates. Yes, that's one of many differences, uh, the prerogative of the officer to uh, re- resign, at least in, in many circumstances they can get away with that. So so was, um, so was who's his replacement? Who takes over the Legion? Jack Thornton, who was the commander of the 1st Battalion prior to the time that uh, 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 Hilliard resigned. And so Thornton comes over and takes command of the Union, but not too long after that, the Union is folded into Gracie's brigade, and while Thorrington is theoretically the head of the of the Legion, um, you know he's got a boss now, and that was Archibald Gracie, and turned out to be a good thing. Gracie was a pretty good soldier and a good commander. I mean, that was something that, that I wondered about reading this, because you have this unique or, or at least unusual structure of the Legion. There are other legions, Hampton's Legion, Cobb's Legion. Uh, but but they don't last typically through the war. Uh, here, so, so where you have a brigade commander who commands four or five regiments, that's your chain of command. Brigade leader gives orders, regiments obey them. Here you've got brigade commander gives orders. Does he give orders to the legion commander who gives them to the battalions, or do the battalions report directly as if they are basically quasi-regiments? So they just... Does the Legion they were quasi regiments, and it, he he commanded uh, them as though they were certainly on the battlefield as they went up the hill. That's the way that he had to do it because if you go to Thorrington and then have Thorrington go to the four, that's going to be a mess. And so right. Gracie, as as I understand it, commanded directly the uh, commanders of each battalion. So Thorrington's role is is more ceremonial by this time. Uh, Must have been. Yep. It, 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 I mean, he doesn't. He doesn't write the after-action report for the Legion, or is there an after, a separate report for the Legion in the official records? Each battalion wrote one, and Gracie wrote one, obviously as a commander of the of the brigade. But each battalion right. uh, wrote uh, after-action report. And one of the battalions, it had to be the next man up. It ended up being the mm-hmm. third man in line who wrote it because the other two were dead. So, but but the legion commander is not, he doesn't write a report because he's not really playing a, a battlefield command role by this time. Uh, I looked and could not find a report by see, Thornton. No. Yeah, I would think not. But that, I, just, I found that interesting because it is an unusual structure. Um, so we've got now got uh, the legion organized, commanded. Uh, they don't see any combat. Did, did they participate in the campaign before Chickamauga? Did they march around? They, mar- they, they got in plenty of aerobic exercise. They, uh, <laughs> they were involved in several uh, campaigns, marching with armies. And at Perryville, they were held in reserve and, and were never brought up to the front. So they were around battles, but they were never involved in battles until uh, September 20 of 1863. So here they are on the battlefield. Longstreet's commanding the left half of the Confederate Army. He's pushed uh, some of his troops through the gap left in the Union lines. That's a story for another day, another part of the battlefield. But the Union uh, flank is still anchored on Snodgrass Hill, on on this uh, Horseshoe Ridge. 
and that's where uh, where Hilliard's Legion, Gracie's Brigade, is about to go into action. They're not the first division to attack this position, though, are they? Oh no, no, they were they were just the last part of a set of waves, if you will, that just continually reached the hill and attacked. It was. Uh, a bludgeoning, really. Uh, that's something that Longstreet did that, uh, I mean, I've seen a, a really very fine essay written by uh, W.G. Robertson, I believe you know him, uh, called Bull in the Woods, about Longstreet challenging the way that Longstreet conducted those last few hours. And Preston's um, division was thrown up against the hill, and so uh, Gracie's group was the last to attack. There is an estimate that there were 21 total charges against uh, Horseshoe Ridge during the afternoon of that day, and the 20th and 21st uh, were, at least at Hill 1, the 20th and 21st were done by Gracie's Brigade. So this brings up a point that you make in the book that Longstreet had the option, instead of uh, first he throws Kershaw's division up the hill and then uh, Preston's division follows with, with Gracie's brigade involved, uh, you make the argument that he might have gone around uh, the flank. This is the last, this is the end of the Union line, so instead of attacking the hill directly, he might have outflanked it. Is that, is that Monday morning quarterbacking, or is that something a historian can legitimately argue about? Well, you know, Jerry, I don't believe historians would argue so much about it if it wasn't for what Longstreet did after the war. Remember, he outlived most of the Confederate command structure, and so um, at the end he was constantly saying what they should have done, what they could have done, and in many cases Longstreet said, well, I argued that we should have done this, and I argued that we should have done that, but if you read... Uh, Longstreet's autobiography, if you read his report in the official reports, if you read interviews he did with newspapers um, after the turn of the century, he's got three different stories. And the reason I believe that you can Monday morning quarterback Longstreet legitimately is that he second-guesses everybody except himself. And he says that he told Bragg that they should have done an end run, but he told Bragg that on the 21st, not on the 20th. And so I I think it's legitimate to... uh, the second-guess James Longstreet on that particular incident for the simple reason he second-guesses everybody else um, as soon as they're all dead. So he, he who was famous for suggesting to Lee at, at Gettysburg that the Confederates go around the flank, not attack the position head-on at, at the round tops, uh, here he does attack head-on. I found it interesting that uh, when when. The division that includes Gracie's brigade goes into action. Uh, they're they're going through the woods, and anybody who's been to Chickamauga knows that it's heavily wooded. Uh, that they you have a, a, an almost immediate breakdown where uh, Gracie's men are, are sent into action, not by their own division commander, but by somebody else. That there's this confusion on the field as to who's in charge. Yes, and that was a failure on Gracie's part. He. He sent ahead an um, uh, 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 emissary to tell the commander in front of him, don't shoot at us, we're, we're coming to reinforce you and go up the hill. Mm-hmm. And uh, the commander that he talked to said, well, just go now. And so rather than going to Preston, who was still getting his line set up and making sure Preston knew what he was doing, Gracie just stepped off. And that led, for, led into another 
miss or uncoordinated Confederate attack. I think I called a chapter that. Uh, it was an uncoordinated attack because you've got two parts of the line going up that hill uh, separated by several minutes, possibly as many as ten, and that leads to more confusion, and it also leads the left side of Gracie's line open to enfilading fire. So they they don't just sweep up to the top of the hill and, and drive the, the federal troops away in one in, in one gallon charge. It, it's more complex than that. A great deal more complex than that. On the right side of Gracie's line is the 63rd Tennessee. And for whatever reason, as Gracie attacks uh, Hill 1 at Horseshoe Ridge, if you've been there, you know that there's a point and then it makes a... Uh, I'm going to call it a hard 90-degree turn. Obviously, in nature, nothing's a perfect corner, but in essence, it's a 90-degree turn. And so Gracie's line had to pivot um, with its right end turning more, sort of like the defensive end on a football field turning around a tackle to go after a quarterback. And at the tail end of that line, the 63rd Tennessee, rather than turning left, it went straight and advanced into the cornfield where there was an artillery group waiting, and uh, the 63rd Tennessee just got destroyed. And in just a few minutes, they went from 400 men to 200 men, and they pulled back. But the rest of Gracie's, the right side of Gracie's line, did make the left wheel and did go up the hill. They got pushed back. The 43rd Alabama then comes in and reinforces the 2nd Battalion on the far right, and they, with uh, Gracie right with them, pushing them up in person, uh, the second charge that they made did rise to the top, did force the Union defenders off the side of the hill and back in the neighborhood of 100 or 150 yards into some trees that are on the far side of the modern-day parking lot at the top of Snodgrass Hill. We'll take a break right here and find out what happens to Gracie's Brigade once they're on top of the hill when we come back and talk more with Lee Elder, author of That Bloody Hill, Hilliard's Legion at Chickamauga. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Lee Elder, author of That Bloody Hill, Hilliard's Legion at Chickamauga. And we ended our last segment as Hilliard's Legion ascended uh, Horseshoe Ridge, uh, Snodgrass Hill, the complex of uh, elevated terrain at the southern end of the Union Line at Chickamauga, uh, driving back the federal defenders. It's about 5 p.m. on September 20th when this happens. And uh, at this time, the the federal troops are out of ammunition. They're falling back. This leads to a a question that you spend considerable time discussing in the book, so I, I will ask you about it here. Do they do uh, Hilliard's Legion, uh, Gracie's Brigade, hold the hill, or are they driven off before uh, before the end of the battle? The short answer is they held the hill. Mm-hmm. The long answer, and I'll be succinct with it, <laughs> is that um, Gracie's men did also run out of ammunition. And as the officers reported to Gracie, we're out of ammunition. We've got nothing left to fire. We've taken all the cartridges we can find from our wounded and dead comrades. We've done everything we can do. He gives the order to fall back. Not all of them fell back. Those who still had ammunition stayed at the top of the hill. And there never actually was a Union counterattack at Gracie's Confederates on the top of the hill. So they held it for the rest of the evening. Oh, that implies that there was a Union counterattack elsewhere. Can you talk about that? Yes, there were a number of Union counterattacks, and that's, Jerry, that's where the confusion is for people who study this battle. It can be maddening, I know, because I went kind of crazy there for a few years until I got it figured out. But the bottom line is that as wave after wave of Confederate attack came up the hill, there were groups of Union regiments who fought them off, and frequently a Union regiment would come in to the fighting, expend its ammunition, see the Confederates retreat, and then they would pull back confident that they had ended the battle. Mm-hmm. Many, many of the Union officers who wrote reports after the battle wrote that they fired the final shots of the battle and then they left. And then, unnotes to them, a new wave of Confederate attackers would come and somebody else would have to fight that group off and then those Union officers would write that no, they fired the final and winning shots of the battle. And so uh, because of the nature of the attacks, wave after wave, because of the broken nature of the defense where units came and left, uh, 
no one was really sure who did what, and many people were convinced that they left the uh, battlefield at about sundown. But sundown was a very confusing term because, picture if you will, all the fires that can get started mm-hmm. on the Civil War battlefield because the uh, small arm fire trails a lot of sparks and there's undergrowth in the trees at Chickamauga and there's little fires that start. There's tremendous gun smoke hanging in the air. The trees are tall. They're blocking the sun as it begins to get lower in the sky. No one really knows what time it is, and many of the Union officers writing reports said that many of the things that they did happened at sundown when it actually happened an hour or more before sundown. So it was very confusing. There were other Union counterattacks, not just on Hill 1, but also on Hills 2 and 3. But the one that Gracie was involved in, uh, there was no Union counterattack, and his men were on the hill all night long. Well, it, the uh, it, reading your account of this and the, the conflicting accounts that you cite reminds one of the, uh, uh, I think it was Wellington attributed, uh, attributed to Duke of Wellington saying that the uh, history of a battle is like writing the history of a ball, uh, of a dance. You know, it, it, literally, who danced with who at what time? Uh, people's memories are different. Uh, all these things are happening at the same time. Uh, people are distracted. It's impossible to uh, note all these things, uh, given the tools historians have. But there, I thought there was one particularly interesting bit of uh, the, the incident of the, I think it was the South Carolina color bearer that both sides observed, and that helped you identify uh, that this must have been, this was not Gracie's brigade, but a different brigade. Uh, and this was a key moment in terms of uh, determining what happened. And, and this happened, uh, I should say, I learned to be able to determine what happened through the Archibald Gracie papers. Many, mm-hmm. And I'm going to answer your question in just a moment, but I would sure. like to make the point that most uh, uh, people who study the Battle of Chickamauga will eventually read Archibald Gracie's book, mm-hmm. The Truth About Chickamauga. They do not, for whatever reason, read the Archibald Gracie papers, and the papers are an absolute gold mine. if you wish to know what happened in the closing hours on Snodgrass Hill. It's just a gold mine of explanation. And to answer your question directly, there was a very well-written, very well-described incident where a Confederate color bearer for a regiment was shot. As he was wounded, he threw his flag back over his head and down the hill to his comrades for self for safekeeping, and he died uh, on that spot. And many of the Union uh, summaries of the battle will use that as a timing mechanism to say, well, this happened when and this happened when. And many of the Union reports would have you believe that that was part of Gracie's brigade that uh, that this soldier belonged to. And Archibald Gracie the Fourth, the general's son, spent a great deal of time determining exactly who this was. And it turns out that an officer from the 18th Ohio named Grosvenor described for Gracie the Fourth the flag that was thrown backwards over this flag bearer's head, and it had a palmetto tree on it, making it a South Carolina regiment. And further... Uh, investigation um, leads you to determine that this had to happen sometime before 4 o'clock. Gracie's men did not get to uh, Horseshoe Ridge until 4.30 in the afternoon. 
And so the fact that there was a palmetto tree on it making a South Carolina regiment, the fact that the description of everything makes it fit with an attack that uh, ended before 4 o'clock tells you that this great counterattack by the Union forces that drove that group down the hill did Mm -hmm. not involve Archibald Gracie's brigade. And that was, for me, the key that turned the lock, that opened the door, that told me that uh, it was, in fact, not true that a counterattack by the Union pushed the Confederates off at the very end of the battle and won it for them. It was, in fact, a Confederate victory. Gracie's men were on the hill. There was no Union counterattack against that group of Confederate soldiers. So the that's an extraordinarily satisfying thing to happen in historical research when you can correlate uh, multiple accounts and and have them uh, come together in such a way that it establishes something as as very likely to be the case, uh, especially when it's up in the air before that and you're trying to figure out what happened when and then you get these different accounts from different people and and it all comes together. Uh, So now a harder question. Uh, So we know that uh, Gracie's men held the hill uh, they they waited till they were relieved by units that, that had full ammo pouches or cartridge boxes, or uh, some of them didn't leave the hill at all, as you point out. Some of them stayed overnight, uh, were, were there the whole time, but they were not driven off the hill. That that seems clear from the evidence you cite. Uh, the harder question is, why does that matter? Well, the reason that it matters is that if you visit the Chickamauga Chattanooga National Military Park and read the tablets and read the regimental markers that are on Horseshoe Ridge, on and around Horseshoe Ridge, they portray the battle as ending in a specific way. That way is not the way that I found the battle ended in. It is, and I I really have the utmost respect for James Ogden, who is the historian at the park, and he was a tremendous help to me uh, when I was writing my book. And I don't mean to say anything the least bit disrespectful about him, but the uh, the markers at the park would lead you to believe something that did not, in fact, actually happen. That's not something Ogden had anything to do with. That was done a uh, hundred and some odd, hundred twenty years ago when the park was put together. But mm-hmm. it matters when you want to be historically accurate. And and I guess you know, for its own sake, it's worthwhile to know how things actually happened, and, uh, you know, as opposed to how they didn't. That's certainly a, a preferable uh, way to account for things. So the the unit holds the hill. The northern forces retreat. Uh, the Battle of Chickamauga comes to an end. Union forces stay in in Chattanooga. Um, but we're looking specifically here at Hilliard's Legion. What happens to them after the battle? Well, after the and by the way, there was a small number of men from Hilliard's Legion who were a part of the great encirclement at the, the final moments of the battle when the 21st Ohio was encircled and captured. 265 or so Union soldiers were captured. And there were 50 men from Hilliard's Legion that were part of that group, too. And so mm-hmm. because of that, in Gracie's papers, there is a description of that moment also, which is sort of historic gold. But what happened to the Legion and Gracie's Brigade following the, um, the battle, they went off to Chattanooga. To, uh, they were part of the uh, 
siege of Chattanooga. And then uh, about uh, the middle of or late November, the Legion itself was broken up from four battalions into uh, two regiments and another battalion. They became the 59th Alabama, the 60th Alabama, and the 23rd Alabama Sharpshooters. And uh, uh, they went off, and they were with Longstreet as he went on his screwy little vacation into other parts of the Confederacy. And then they ended up with Robert E. Lee at the uh, with the Army of Northern Virginia. And what's kind of fun about that is that Gracie was a cadet at West Point when Lee was the commandant. And their paths cross again at Petersburg uh, in in the incident. Uh, well, tell us about that that moment of Gracie and Lee on the parapet. Well, and. <laughs> I honestly didn't think that this had happened, and uh, there's a poem by Francis O. Tickner about Gracie uh, saving Robert E. Lee's life, and I, I read that, and I wasn't sure, completely sure that happened. So mm-hmm. um, I did some research, and it turns out that in November of 1864, Robert E. Lee and some of his uh, officers were inspecting the Confederate lines in the trenches in front of Petersburg, and he stepped out on a parapet with a telescope to take a look at the Union lines. And nobody with him had the courage to say that that was the most dangerous part of the entire Confederate line. Perhaps the general should step down from there. No one could do it. No one could say it. So Gracie stepped up and stepped in front of him. And apparently Lee said to him, Gracie, you're going to be shot. And he said, better me than you. And in order to protect Gracie, Lee stepped down from the parapet. And um, there are numerous notes and uh, letters that I later discovered that uh, they are very complimentary of Gracie for having the sagacity to not say anything to Lee, but rather just put his body in front of him and force the general to step back down again. But it was a... It's a marvelous moment to discover that, hey, this really did happen. It really did happen. It, it, I was struck by the parallel with uh, Abraham Lincoln at, at uh, Fort Stevens outside of Washington during Early's raid. Uh, the difference between northern and southern culture, when Lincoln stands up on a parapet in enemy fire, uh, a Union officer, reputed to be Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., but probably wasn't, yells at him, get down, you damn fool. Uh, not knowing it's the president, just a civilian in a top hat is standing under fire and yells at him. Uh, Southern gentlemen don't do that to one another. They don't. There'd be a duel if you called someone that. No one would dare call Lee that. But by putting his own life on the line, it's a, a quiet way of indicating, General, this is too dangerous for you. Uh, and the general realizes, oh, it's it, it, it just it's so very southern well there's more in this book and and we could talk about it more uh, had we more time but unfortunately uh we don't we're at the end of our hour the book is that bloody hill hilliard's legion at chickamauga uh the author is lee elder and lee it has been really enlightening to learn about this this moment this this uh, microscopic uh view uh, of a single incident in a great battle and and to see how you've unraveled it. And uh, I've enjoyed talking with you about it. Well, I've enjoyed it too, Jerry. It's probably the fastest hour I've ever spent in my life. This was uh, just a delight. And thank you for having me. Well, thank you. And listeners, as always, thank you especially for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.